0: Join me, Dr. Kathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Professor David Gad has over two decades of experience of conducting and analysing in-depth interview research with offenders and has written extensively on the subjects of domestic abuse, masculinities and crime, racial harassment, offender motivation and desistance from crime. His current research interests include human trafficking and the aftermath of violence. His first book, A Psychosocial Criminology, was published by SAGE in 2007 His second book, Losing the Race, about racial harassment perpetrators and how to respond to them, was published by Karnak in 2011. His third book, Young Men and Domestic Violence, was published by Taylor & Francis in 2015. He is the editor of the Sage Handbook of Criminological Research Methods. He is the co-editor of the British Journal of Criminology and co-director of the Responses to Interpersonal Violence Network, In the past, David has undertaken ESRC funding From Boys to Men, a project which looked at what can be done to stop young men becoming perpetrators of domestic violence in later life, a project that examined domestic abuse prevention and education across Europe, a study on the perpetrators of racially motivated crime, and a study on male victims of domestic abuse. David is currently Professor of Criminology at the University of Manchester. Welcome, Dave Gadd. Morning. Thanks
1: for inviting me
0: on. Well, thank you, because this is an interview that I have been looking forward to for a very long time, because I don't think there are that many professors of criminology in the country with the expertise on, on the topics that everyone is talking about at the moment. Mm-hmm. Certainly at the moment, I think the every there's a culmination of events that have occurred that have really brought to the public's attention both you know the nature of domestic violence or concern over women's safety an interest in male violence and in you know other kinds of behaviors so as you know everyone's invited has been an extraordinary movement that has begun on Instagram we have 14,000 accounts of abuse Within UK schools on that. But also we had the murder of Sarah Everard and the murder of sisters Biba Henry and Nicole Smallman. So all of these things have really drawn attention to violence against women, sexual assault, and what's called that rape culture in school. And as someone who's been researching male violence for a long time, what's your sort of response to those events and what's happened and have you been surprised by the volume of testimony gathered by movements like Everyone's Invited?
1: Well, I think it's fair to say that I'm, I'm saddened, but not surprised by the volume and the, the horror of all of this. We've kind of known that about the pervasiveness of violence against women at home and in the public sphere for a very long time. So, I mean, as, as I'm sure you know, you know, a woman is killed every three days by a partner or ex-partner in the UK, one in every thirteen women will have experienced domestic abuse in the UK in the last twelve months and one in five women over sixteen will have been sexually assaulted in their in their lifetime in the UK. So the volume and the tragedy and the, the nastiness of all of this is not new. But what what is new is as you said is how this is all coming together from the ground up in terms of a reaction and a, a resistance against it academics, feminists, criminologists have been talking about everyday violence against women and girls for sort of 50 years now. but It's never quite captured the public mood or the public's attention the way it has just done. And I, and I have to say, I don't actually know why that is. My suspicion is it's a combination of the, of the pandemic and people being at home and having different ways of looking at what's in the news and on social media than before. And perhaps also because the way has been paved a little by Black Lives Matter in terms of sort of generating solidarity from the ground up, building a movement in that way to pose questions about who is to blame for all of this. And of course, the answer with very much of this violence against women and girls is it's men and the spotlight needs to be on men and boys now.
0: You spent years researching male violence. People just always ask, why? Why is it that men are are committing these offences in the home and in other contexts, when women don't? And I know that's a giant question, but it's Mm -hmm. something people are terribly puzzled by.
1: It is a a giant question, and it isn't easy to answer, I have to say. I've interviewed many, many men who've been abusive over the years and have a number of projects that are about domestic abuse and male violence now. Uh, In my experience, most of the men that have done this kind of hurt are actually quite willing to talk about what they have done in the right circumstances. And one of the reasons for that is that there aren't actually all that many places where you can, if you're a domestic abuse perpetrator, admit to what you have done. I think one of the things to say about that is most of those guys, you know, are actually quite ordinary people. Some of them actually are quite charming, quite likeable, maybe even quite lovable. Others may be quite controlling, may be quite misogynistic or pedantic when you meet them, but rarely are people 100% misogynistic or 100% sexist. They've usually got some redeeming qualities. Some of those men will be people that actually do like hurting people. They might be considered quite sadistic, but this is actually quite rare. I think in, in my experience, most men who perpetrate domestic abuse are ashamed or embarrassed by what they have done and need to find a way of trying to explain that to people. Of course, typically what the men in those circumstances do is say, well, it was just a one-off incident when things got out of control. I shouldn't have done it, but something terrible happened to make me behave in that way. Whereas the women in those relationships will usually describe a pattern of coercive control, that things have been, been going that way for quite some time. There may have been some checking up, some shouting turning the kids against the, the woman, all kinds of things would have sort of led up to an actual physical assault or maybe a number of physical assaults. So when I've done research on this, what I tend to do is at the start, you know, I'll accept what the man says, that it is, or well, accept on the surface about what the man says about it being a single instant. I'll try and get him to tell the story of the relationship and the story of those particular incidents to try and sort of work outwards from that. And usually what you you find is that there are things that the men didn't really want to know or didn't really want to hear about themselves. It may be that their partner has actually confronted them with the fact that they're being abusive or they're behaving just like their fathers or they're scaring their children or that the relationship is ending, either that she knows that he's been unfaithful or he knows that she's been unfaithful or, or suspects that. So there'll often be this kind of exchange between the couple and then sometimes what will happen in that is that the man will actually want to silence the discussion and that's where the physical violence will where the where the kind of psychological abuse emotional abuse will turn into physical violence you know the sexist name calling the threats won't have worked from the man's point of view to kind of shut down the criticism that's that's being made of him sometimes criticism that is actually as you would say close to the bone actually so true that it's painful to hear And tragically, that's where you sometimes get men who will use strangulation to shut down what their partners are saying to actually, you know, to to stop them speaking. They will say, well, this was just about calming down the situation. But of course, it's absolutely terrifying for anybody to be on the receiving end of that. And that tragically is where, you know, many lethal domestic abuse incidents actually end, you know, that, that, that man actually suffocates the partner in that way. So we've seen a lot of that in the news uh, recently with with attempts by government to now outlaw non-fatal strangulation and to recognise what a serious crime that is.
0: So in those moments, are you suggesting, like, it sounds like someone is confronted about the way they're acting or behaving, and it's hard to believe that a man could just step into that extremely violent space so rapidly because of a bit of, because they've been challenged a little bit. It just seems extraordinary.
1: Well, I don't think it is rapid because usually these things will have built up over, you know, over many months, over many, many years. You know, we tend to think about domestic abuse often when we see Uh it in soap operas or in films as something that's kind of happening every day. Of course, there are relationships where physical violence is threatened every day, but actually I think in most relationships where domestic abuse happens, it's a kind of rare event. You know, it might happen every five or six months or so, and the couple will kind of get along for a while. One of the reasons why they'll get along is that people that are victims become very good at managing their safety, at keeping the peace, not saying things that will offend the person who's tetchy or going to get angry. So, you know, they'll try and keep a lid on things for a long time, but inevitably, you know, conflicts come in life. You can't keep a lid on everything all of the time. And so you may have, you know, a man who's got drink or drug problems, mental health problems, and eventually the partner will need to say, you know, this is too much. And he's going to struggle to hear that if he's an abusive man. And that's kind of where things tend to, where the man will try and say, well, actually, my reality counts, and I don't want to hear your version of reality. And that's where this kind of silencing can come in through the use of of the threat of violence.
0: And I have to ask, I mean, there may be people listening who are women who are in this situation and who might be absolutely terrified of bringing up this, uh, the way you acted last night, Saturday night, we need to talk about. Yeah. Do you have any advice on what you've learned from the research that can help? Is there a particular context? Is there particular words that you can say that are much more helpful and effective when you're trying to challenge a perpetrator's behavior?
1: Well, I think the most important thing that people are living with that threat or fear can do is to let other people know, you know, so that they're not dealing with it on their own. So It's really important to tell other family members what's happening if you can. I mean, sometimes family members will support the perpetrator and that can cause problems too. But most people will know at least somebody who will understand what they're going through or could help to understand what they're going through. You know, one of the pieces of advice that sometimes, you know, at the moment people in the pandemic can't often easily leave, you know, can't easily leave the the property sometimes. But, you know, getting a neighbour to call round something that they've borrowed to return or some cakes that they've made or something. So there's actually a conversation there so the person can say, look, actually things have got really bad or I need a reason to leave and and go out. I think it's, it's really key. I'm not sure that I can suggest something that people can do to sort of change an abusive partner. Often by the time it's got to that point, there's actually very little that the person living with the abuse can do to totally resolve and take away the threat of violence. They may be able to, as I said before, keep a lid on things, to keep things quiet when the children are around, persuade the partner not to behave in that way, you know, in a way that will frighten the children. But that threat is always there. You know, once somebody has actually hit their partner, the partner is going to live with that fear for a really long time. They're not going to know that it's gone away. And that, I think, is really where professional help is needed. You know, most of the time, people simply cannot solve this on their own. They cannot take the terror away on their own. So they need to put in place, you know, systems and and support networks where somebody else can come and intervene.
0: What other patterns do you see in that set of domestic violence perpetrators? Is there a a sort of a, a mean age where they are violent towards a partner? To what extent is alcohol and drugs involved? What other patterns do you know about domestic violence offenders?
1: Well, there there is a mean age, but it's perhaps not always all that useful because it can be at any age. You know, we've seen in the news over the last year, you know, cases as, as sort of young as 15, 16 and cases going into the 70s or, or 80s, I think I saw where a man had, had killed his partner. So it, it can affect people at any age and, and and some women will have lived with it for many decades in, in long marriages. So there is that. One of the things that is also true, though, is that the sort of peak age for domestic abuse type offending is between 16 and 25. And this is a little bit of a puzzle in some ways, because we tend to think about domestic abuse as correlated with sexism and traditional patriarchal values. but. Those values are actually often more found amongst older generations of men. The younger generations of men will sort of say, well, you know, I'm I'm fully supportive of gender equality. Uh, You know, I I think my partner should have the same as me. They'll say that they're anti-sexist men or feminist men, but there may still be problems with abuse there. And I think that should caution us against loading all of the problems onto attitude or at least make us think about whether attitudes and personality are reducible to each other because often people, you know, behave in ways that are contrary to their particular values or attitudes. It's not always the case that there are a combination of other factors. I mean, the vast majority of domestic abuse is perpetrated by men. And in my experience, those men that are kind of persistently violent do have a catalogue of other problems in their lives. There may often be men who have had problems with trust in the past. They may have good reasons to be distrusting in their relationships, so maybe their home lives as children weren't particularly good. Maybe one of their own parents was abusive or maybe one of their own parents was absent for a long time. Maybe they've got experience of being in care or maybe they've got experience of being let down by professionals. So sometimes there are men who have real problems with trust for good reasons and then they can be quite jealous and suspicious in their relationships. But it's not always the case. You can't always find a reason. Obviously, people that have got problems that they're trying to hide, particularly people that are trying to hide substance abuse problems from their partners, that can cause a a, a kind of climate of suspicion and paranoia in a relationship if someone's got alcohol or drug dependency and they don't want their partner to know about that, but the partner is starting to suspect that they're behaving strangely or the family finances are being spent or they're coming in and out late at night or meeting strange people. You know, all of those reasons can kind of spark a, a cycle of paranoia and jealousy in a relationship, which some people will then try to to dampen down by threatening behaviour. So there can be lots of kind of compounding factors in this. Another compounding factor, an important one, of course, is, is to do with lack of money and poverty. So you know, one of the things that you would want to say to a friend who is living with domestic abuse is, well, could you consider moving out? Or could the perpetrator consider moving out? Could you consider separating? Well, for some families, that's just not financially possible. So sometimes people will stay together in situations that are, are quite dangerous, because they simply cannot divide up the resources, simply cannot envisage a situation where the children live more with one partner than the other, or live entirely with their mother. So those things can actually, you know, mean that people will put up with something that's actually quite scary and quite dangerous for a long time.
0: You've mentioned coercive control, and I think everyone in the country now, because of soap operas and public health campaigns, that we're all kind of aware of what that might look like, which is great. Mm-hmm. But it's absolutely, you know, as the mother of teenage boys, it's just so shocking to think that a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old could exhibit that kind of behavior in an early relationship with another teenager.
1: Yeah, I think it is shocking, and it certainly does happen. I have interviewed teenage boys who have already started behaving in that way, and I've also interviewed many older men who will sort of say, "Well, the problem is, you know, with this relationship now, and if I leave, if I leave that woman, then there'll be no further problem." And then when you ask them about their previous relationships you find that actually all of their previous relationships going back to their teens have had this problem and the, one of the real issues there is that nobody has said anything and nobody has intervened you know so a pattern has built up from foot 15 16 17 onwards where there's been no intervention whatsoever maybe even nobody really outside the relationships has known what has gone on so, so that that's part of the picture all that said though I think we have to be a little bit careful with using the concept of coercive control with younger groups of people because often there'll be small aspects you know coercive control is a pattern of you know emotional psychological physical abuse combined with potential for actual assaults and sexual violence and it may be you know at those younger ages that there's only sort of some small signs there just one or two indicators maybe the young person has checked up on their girlfriend maybe they've been a bit pushy about who they've been out with or those those kinds of things. And I think, you know, when you've only got one or two aspects there of what might be a pattern of coercive control, it's important not to rush into labelling the person. You might want to say this behaviour is not really on, and you're at risk of becoming or, or doing something that you will later regret and will cause some harm. But I think there needs to be a way back for younger people rather than sort of saying, well, because you've just done this, that means you are a perpetrator of of coercive control we need we need to find a new language really
0: understood and give young men the chance to make mistakes and learn and and yeah. find themselves in those early relationships one of the things of course i'm very interested in parenting and i think the two sort of terms in my head i'm thinking about young men's emotional literacy and mm-hmm. uh, how parents and carers and educators what a delicate process it is when they begin these young relationships and how they do need a tremendous amount of sort of parental engagement, if you like. And lots of chats about the sort of the, the granularity of what goes on in these relationships and a lot of help.
1: Yeah, I think emotional literacy is key. And I think it's also really understated in a lot of the public debate about this. You know, what we, we do talk a lot about sort of challenging sexism and challenging misogyny without really engaging why some men are invested in sexism and, and misogyny. A few years ago I did this project called the From Boys to Men Project. We interviewed a lot of young people there and we tended to find that you know most young people did think that domestic abuse was wrong. Some people, more boys than girls would think of certain circumstances where they could think that domestic abuse or hitting a partner could be okay and that was usually if the partner had been unfaithful or if the partner had hit them first. And one of the things that we were able to sort of unpick a bit about that is that many young men think about fights or arguments as fights, but they tended to think about arguments as fights that they needed to win, perhaps more than girls do. And so that that kind of sets up a little bit of a dynamic in itself. That, you know, that the boys think they have to be right, and there's a certain sort of sense of entitlement that goes with that. But at the same time, most young men absolutely condemn domestic abuse and violence against women and girls. You know, we, we did focus group after focus group. And in every group, the young men said, well, this is this is wrong. You know, a young man shouldn't be, it wasn't even physical violence. You know, it was, it was they shouldn't be controlling their partner in that way. However, when they sort of came to talking about vignettes in which they could sort of see themselves, then they could kind of see why a young man in that situation might want to behave in a controlling way. It was It was a story about a young woman going out dressing up and going out to meet a friend. And so I think there's a sort of a paradox in that, in that often young men think that controlling behaviour is wrong, but they can identify why some people might do it, and then they don't really fully appreciate that the more that you control a person, the less secure you feel in a relationship, because you don't really know whether that person's just doing stuff to keep the peace, to comply with what you've asked, or because they really want to be with you or to, you know to be your partner. And I think a lot of adults also struggle with that too, you know, the idea that the more that you control someone, the less in control you feel, the less secure you feel. So I think there's, a, there's quite a complex emotional learning that needs to happen there. And I think families need to play a part in that really alongside schools. But of course, some families are not well equipped for that. And, and some schools are not desperately equipped for having that conversation too.
0: And it's also making me think that, you know, some of the things we could do in family life are really, you know, you've talked about those vignettes, but I don't think enough chat in family life is generated about our own experiences of early love or romance or the awkwardness, the difficulty reading body language, all of those very, very big topics could be covered over a period of time in family life from quite a young age, if you like.
1: Yeah, I think they could. I suppose family life—I mean, maybe family life is changing a bit—but I suppose there is a sort of sense in which parents often present a fate complete to their children, you know, without revealing all the <laughs> tribulations of intimacy and the ups and downs of breakups that have gone before that with previous partners. So I think there is something that needs to be needs to be said there to children, and also just kind of unpicking the expectation that young people will enter into. Settled partnerships fairly soon after they leave home. I think I think that's actually a mistake, and one of the messages that really needs to get across to young people is you shouldn't ever really stay in a relationship for very long that's making you unhappy. Of course, many young people do do that; they feel that they need a relationship, you know. And I, I think that I think that's the wrong message to convey.
0: So I think that one of the things I'm thinking about is sort of self-esteem and the role of self-esteem in the sort of how young men respond to getting dumped or, you know, the rejection or, you know, we know that girls nationally have higher self-esteem than boys, but there's something in this, isn't there, that it looks like we have to take care of boys' self-esteem. They seem to be potentially more sensitive to what's going on in these intimate relationships. Is that right?
1: Well, I think there's a dynamic with self-esteem. So uh, I think it's also true, you know, that many young women in abusive relationships have their self-esteem either dented or it may have been low at the start and that that makes it very easy for someone who is manipulative to keep that person in a relationship and to say well she don't leave you'll be worse off without me i think the issue with with boys particularly boys that are being abusive is that yes they may have very low self-esteem but they're unlikely to admit that and so you know having a partner becomes a bit of a, a status symbol for them to shore up other issues in their life and you know when i was doing those interviews with young men who were being abusive, many of them sort of took the view that if they just got another girlfriend, everything would be all right in their lives. But they were often young men who've got many problems in their lives. You know, they may have been thrown out of home by their parents and may have spent some time living in care or living homeless. Some of them had drug and alcohol problems. None of them had ever like paid household bills or managed a home for very long. And so you know, to suddenly think at 16, 17, that life was going to be bliss when you moved in with a young woman at that age and had to meet those bills. Well, of course it wasn't, you know, and all kinds of problems then start to emerge in relationships where people just don't understand the challenges of domestic life. So yes, I think self-esteem is important for both young men and women, but perhaps in slightly different ways in abusive relationships.
0: The other thing is that I think we all know that boys, especially young men, might struggle to open up more. You've alluded to that or talk about their feelings Mm -hmm. and the the need for emotional literacy and that vocabulary. But what can we do as parents? You know, you and I are both raising boys. How can we Mm -hmm. do whatever we what's the best thing that we can possibly do to ensure that they feel comfortable opening up?
1: I think we have to start those conversations early with children. And often it's about talking about friendships, you know, in those early years, rather than intimate relationships. I think we have to try and create a safe space where, you know, our children can say what is going right and what is going wrong for them and express their worries. And as you were saying before, I think that does mean you do have to share, you know, some of the mistakes you have made in your own life. I think it's also though important to be a little bit connected with what's available, you know, in your locality, what services are there for young people, what online services are there for young people. Because sometimes people need to start a chat with somebody else before they can bring it back home. It may be that, you know, you're not the parent that they want to go to first with the disclosure that they want to make. So sometimes they need a little bit of support to just get to the point to say what it is that they're trying to to say.
0: I think nationally, we're talking a lot about healthy. Everyone, you know, young men need to understand what young women what a healthy relationship looks mm-hmm. like. You know, I think a lot of adults would struggle to identify the characteristics yeah. of a healthy relationship. But let's just try and unpick it a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that is kind of a tricky question, and I and I have long kind of flinched at the slightly medical yeah. tone of that yeah. because you know we're all a little bit healthy, a little bit unhealthy most days, you know, you sometimes feel well, and you sometimes feel don't. And so we don't really, there's a danger here of kind of producing an ideal model, particularly a model that is conflict free. So I mean, the idea that a, a good relationship is one where you never argue is absolutely wrong, isn't it? You know, that people should be able to work through difficulties and talk to their partner about them. I think perhaps one of the most important things that, people need to kind of take on board is is to have the curiosity to be interested in what the other person is thinking and feeling and that needs to just go beyond saying how was your day are you all right and to, to have the confidence to ask the other person what they really want from the relationship in the longer term of course that also extends to the sexual aspects of the relationship to actually ask the person you know what it is they really want from intimacy from them Rather than just simply trying to, you know, secure consent for something that the one person wants. So it's that kind of curiosity that I think builds the strongest relationships. And we all kind of have that experience, don't we? Of you know, when you see a friend and they genuinely listen to what you're trying to say, and they show that they've listened by echoing back some of what you've told them and probing a bit beyond what you were going to say in the first place and that you know that can feel like such a weight off a person's shoulders I think for me that's what makes a really healthy relationship
0: I think what you're making me think and reflect on is the need to really develop our children's listening skills and and to think more broadly less about healthy versus unhealthy relationships but about relationships in general what makes a good friend how can you be a good Mm -hmm. listener how can you make other people feel valued, those are bigger conversations and potentially more interesting ones. And to be interested in the quality of relationships in general in family life.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, and no good intimate partnership stands on its own, does it So you know if, if both people in that are also interested in lots of other people's lives and, and you know are able to bring in a circle of support, many of their problems will be much more easily resolved.
0: Now you've mentioned sex and this is obviously one of the big talking points. I think the whole public has just and the media have honed in on this idea of consent. And when I Mm -hmm. read one of your quotations, it just blew my mind because this is so interesting. You know, I think I too had that narrow concern about consent, but you say there are risks in teaching men that consent is the only prize to be negotiated, secured, and won. <laughs> you know, Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds very bold, doesn't it? I was looking recently at that campaign that it's a really good campaign, actually, that has been using the sort of metaphor of tea to persuade or to teach young people about consent. And so the, the basic message is, you know, if, if you wouldn't make someone have a cup of tea, then why would you make them have sex with you? And there are other examples in the in the video too where there's a cartoon character trying to tip tea down the throat of someone that's asleep. You know, of course, none of us would try and do that. So then that, that's well, why, you know, if you wouldn't make someone who's asleep have a cup of tea, why would you try and make them have sex with you? And I think it's a really thought-provoking piece of film, However, the metaphor does break down in quite a number of ways. So, of course, many of us have had experiences of having a cup of tea with someone when we didn't really want to, but we knew it would ease the situation. Many of us have had experiences of, of taking a cup of tea from an older person because it's the polite thing to do when you're at your grandmother's house, you know, but actually you don't really want to be encouraging people to accept sex from older people because it's the polite thing to do. But I think more fundamentally than that, you know, tea is kind of a thing and sex is really a a relationship. So when we sort of teach young men about trying to get consent or to make sure they have consent, some young men will just kind of think, well, as long as the person has said yes, or as long as the person has said oh, okay then, you know, and that may be after a long period of pestering and hassling and maybe after some drinkers can be consumed, then that's all right. Well, that's not okay because the person has kind of been pressurised into saying yes. And we see some of these stories in the news where, you know, there's been kind of date rapes or even famous celebrities, you know, have had fans back in their room and the person has kind of said yes, but hasn't really meant it. So I don't think that's enough. And I also don't think that's really enough for people's own well-being and happiness in life I and mean, nobody wants to look back and think well that person just had sex with me because i hassled them or because i put pressure on them And i think young men would get much more out of their intimate relationships if they are actually looked for enthusiasm in their partners does this person really want to sleep with me does this person really like me and to be brave enough to ask you know why does this person really like me to sort of say why do you really want to be with me and i think that's the kind of goal that we should be aiming for So if we set a much a much higher bar, then some of those issues of consent where, you know, things were shady will will disappear. If we set the bar really low, then obviously some people will pitch even lower than that. And that's where the problems really emerge in the kind of cases that we see in the newspapers and the kind of cases that go to court.
0: But again, the implication is we need to be talking about how you know someone likes you how you know mm-hmm. someone isn't interested that's all about body language reading social cues all of those things and having the confidence to step away mm-hmm. when you don't you know want to take the relationship further there's a whole pathway that needs to be opened up before you get to that point of just it seems so black and white to just get to that point where you're trying to negotiate consent what about you know connection romance mm-hmm. you know all of those yeah. beautiful pathways towards that moment seem to be lost and not potentially even discussed that much
1: yeah exactly yeah. I, I think that is that <laughs> I think that is the problem of course we do have to accept that but not everybody you know wants massive amounts of romance beforehand of course some of us do but not everybody does so I think you know yeah. I think we have to kind of accept that for some people it may not be a long-term dating relationship. And that that's why I think it's important to have some, you know, like you say, the body language is important, but there also actually needs to be some kind of verbal exploration of, of why are we doing this? And why do you really like me rather than just do you consent to this?
0: What about the ongoing issue with, I don't think it's terribly prevalent, but sexting, for example, in schools, this is probably a brand new area that's come to your attention, but the pressure to send naked pictures in those early stages of the relationship, the research says it isn't as prevalent as we think, but then everyone's invited, exposed a sort of a culture where that seems to have been quite a dominant pattern in schools.
1: I don't know how prevalent it is in in schools, I have to say say but I do think one of the things we have to think about is is not thinking about kind of online abuse as a sort of discrete thing you know flirtation intimacy all of that kind of negotiation of consent that we were just kind of talking about happens in person and online people's relationships happen in person and online you know so people will share nice pictures of themselves in relationships that are not abusive as well as relationships that become abusive too and I think one of the things that we have to sort of recognise with young people is that when we just present a picture of, you know, online stuff as scary and wrong, they already know what they're doing. You know, they already have some idea. <laughs> they're already doing this. They've already had relationships where they've shared information that's personal about themselves, maybe share pictures about themselves. And we have to kind of build on that rather than just kind of come out with that, don't do it. There's these real horror stories out there. Of course, there is a real problem when you get, you know young men sharing images of young women that they've been with that they've got out of them what's the word on false pretenses or whether it's someone they've been with before and i think we all kind of have to wise up to the fact that the images that we put out there whether they're just shared with a friend or or shared more widely will exist for a very long time on the internet it's often very difficult to get them removed
0: and to what extent do you believe that pornography is affecting young men's attitudes towards women or is that a bit of a myth?
1: I think it's a really tricky one. I don't, I don't think there has been any convincing research on this for quite some time now. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because people seek out kind of erotic content online for all kinds of reasons. It might be because they want to know something, it might be because they're looking at it with a partner. It might be because they're lonely. It might be because it fulfills some kind of fantasy for them. But then when they get there online, what they find is that actually a lot of that content is mixed up with some really horrific stuff. And there was, there was a study done of this recently You know that many of the major kind of online, easy to access kind of porn websites have films that are about rape, that are about incest, that are about all kinds of forceful behavior alongside other kinds of content and so there's something about that that I think frames what people find when they go looking and I guess the question is whether people have got the wherewithal to try and work out what's good and what's bad of course it also suggests that there's well it's it just that there's awful things happening to people out there that are part of the production of pornography that there are people profiting from that and that that is the business model to keep encouraging people back. And I think it's that business model that we probably have to look at first before we start to get too much into whether the kind of media effects are happening with young people. But certainly, you know, there is a danger that some people will move from content that is consensual and relatively mild to stuff that is is really abusive. We do really need to know a bit more about why that happens and, and what the consequences of it are.
0: So let's talk about, you know, what needs to be done, because everyone's talking about what needs to be done Mm -hmm. in schools. The the onus seems to be heavily put on schools these days. And I know you've already done a lot of work on preventative work in schools. I even understood that you'd created a sort of a research toolkit that would help schools carry out their own research. I mean, what happened in that space? What happened to that research toolkit? You've already done a lot of work. What happened to it in terms of impact?
1: We did do a lot of research in schools at the beginning of the From Boys to Men project. So what we were trying to do was assess the impact of a, a locally organised relationship education programme for, for children aged 13 to 14. We were able to sort of show that the, the programme had an impact. It did change young people's attitudes towards domestic abuse, at least in the short term. I don't think the effects were so widely felt in the longer term and there are challenges there too and as as i was saying earlier sometimes you can change attitudes without changes in behavior that's actually much more difficult to measure because you know most of the young people that you'll be teaching in school might not be in a relationship yet the relationship might not come until they're you know 16 17 18 by which time those teachers and those lessons are, are kind of half forgotten for some young people so we did do that the toolkit was taken up in the schools that we went into at that time and they did try to use that to continue to evaluate their work and I think it's really important to try and evaluate some of the work and to provide kind of cheap quick measures that teachers can use to show that you know there has been some level of attitudinal change without having to call in academics and to to run big studies they just need to know on a week-by-week basis how messages are being received of course, nowadays, there are lots of technologies that you can use in the classroom too, online polls and what have you, that would enable you to do that in a much more quicker and efficient way than we did back then.
0: But I think you need to have, if you're a, you know, the head of PSHE in a secondary mm-hmm. school, you need to have an idea of what the outcomes are that you want to see before you begin evaluating that.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I guess there are many different outcomes that you could, could try to identify, particularly in terms of relationship education so you know part of it's going to be about teaching young people about sexual diversity part of it's going to be about teaching people about respect often there's a big focus on teaching the facts of domestic abuse and this is one area where i have some qualms you know they want to teach young people about the proportion of people that have experienced domestic abuse what the effects of it are what the services are and I guess, you know, whilst it's useful to learn those facts, you have to also, as we were saying earlier, engage with the kind of emotional dimensions of intimacy. And that is a kind of more complex lesson to teach, I think, and maybe one that possibly stretches what some teachers can actually deliver within the context of PSAG.
0: And that's why there, there needs to be a sort of partnership approach as much as possible with parents that you could potentially pass the baton back for some conversations or continue that conversation at home. But I think we need to get away from the one assembly on healthy versus mm-hmm. unhealthy relationships.
1: Yeah, that one assembly I think is, is really probably quite counterproductive and, and partly because students spot well, they spot when something is not assessed and they notice, you know, that a non-assessed intervention is perhaps or well, they may assume that a non-assessed intervention is not as important as the subject that they're studying for the GCSE. So that that is a problem. They also spot tokenism, you know, when when the one LGBT vignette is added in or the one week is spent on issues affecting ethnic minority groups. So that's a problem too. I think one of the things that we we actually need to do in, in schools is to think more widely about how these issues can be embedded in the curriculum. So intimacy and violence are the subject of popular music, of film, of art. You could even have a statistics lesson looking at at domestic abuse and trying to make sense of some of the numbers that we see there. I think if we could try to embed stuff much more widely in the curriculum rather than seeing it as a sort of bolt-on, then the conversation would really move. It is important that schools do it because, of course, some people's homes are just not able to take this conversation forward and when you've got young people living with domestic abuse that education is really critical and it's really critical that that students know that there's somebody in the school that they can go and talk to about what's going on at home and it's really important that schools have got the staff and the resources able to handle such disclosures. So schools have got a really important role to play there, but we need to start connecting up what happens in schools with a wider public debate. You know, one of the sort of shortcomings, I think, of what we've done in the UK over the last sort of 10 or 15 years is that whilst there have been some really good public sort of awareness campaigns, often between sort of commercial breaks between soap operas, they've not really joined those up with the dialogue that's happening in schools or even in probation offices or other youth work that might be happening with people. So the message that government has put out has remained rather static and in one place, and probably in one place that many young people don't go to anymore because people don't, they don't really watch commercial breaks now. And they, they zip through those. So I think there's some joining up to do to sort of create a national debate, particularly about boys and men that we're not quite there with yet
0: if you are the head teacher of a co-ed school, uh, as opposed to a single sex school, do you think that the lessons, that the learning would look a little bit different? I know schools are struggling with this. You know, if there is a co-ed secondary school, should they do the lessons together, the girls and the boys together, or should there be a slightly differentiated approach? What's your kind of feeling on that?
1: I think we have to have both, really. I think it's really important that there are some single sex spaces to talk about some issues, you know, that, that girls do need a space to talk about some issues without boys being there. And actually, boys probably need a space too to talk about some of the issues without girls being there. But the dialogue is really important. So you need to be able to bring these things back together quite quickly. And I think, you know, where you create a context where boys can't talk to girls, about how they feel about things, or girls can't say to boys, well, that's your perspective, but think about how it is for us. That's, you know, that's really building in the mistake, isn't it, from the outset.
0: And it sounds like you have to be a terribly skilled educator to navigate some of what might happen. That's very scary for teachers.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the expectations of teachers have raised massively in this area over the last 15, 20 years. And yes, you do need to be really skilled to handle some of this stuff. And I imagine it's actually not very comfortable to listen to some of this content because you know you, you will have in the classroom at the moment, perhaps in the wake of the, the murder of Sarah Everard, you know, we've got some young men saying, well, not all men, and some young women saying, well, this has happened to me, maybe even by some of the boys in the classroom. And you know, we've got 30 different voices there it's really difficult to try and work through what's underpinning some of the claims that are being made and I, I do worry that the curriculum is really crowded and that teachers' time is really crowded for taking some of this on so i'm not not quite sure what the solution is but i think probably more resources more support for teachers and more guidance for teachers in terms of where they should go with some of this stuff is crucial and a lot of it will have to be handled outside of timetabled lessons because once you start opening these conversations all kinds of issues are going to come to service that are, are personal to young people and will require some degree of safeguarding support.
0: One of the things I really want to ask you about is how we stop teenage boys enabling one another so or turning a blind eye to harmful behavior and being a sort of a bystander to it So this seems to be an important area that isn't really that much discussed. How can, you know, I help my 14-year-old intervene when he sees something that isn't right, that doesn't feel good? And this is difficult even for adults to achieve. But can you say a little bit more about that sort of peer pressure?
1: Yeah, it is a really tricky area. and, And, you know, trying to sort of make rules for everyday social life is always really hard, isn't it? And I think one of the reasons why this is particularly difficult is when we start to think about young men speaking out and challenging other men, it it can go in several different ways. You know, when government talks about challenging men, it can often go in a way of singling out bad men and teaching them a lesson. And I think that's the wrong message to give. You know, it's very easy for politicians to say we're going to get really tough on on this subgroup of violent men, often with, with quite racialized connotations. And so what we don't really want is to be encouraging young men to sort of pick fights in public places to jump in and, and try and rescue women. And I think one of the things that many domestic abuse victims would say is also they don't want people to just suddenly jump in and rescue them from a situation that they've been carefully managing for a long time. So I think we have to think about, you know, where support and where challenge can happen. And it might not always be in the midst of a confrontation. It might mean that you need to go away and think about how best to intervene. Or it might mean that a boy at school needs to go and tell the teacher and have a conversation about how intervention can happen. That may mean that the teacher can do something on a whole class basis that doesn't necessarily single anybody out and rally some other people in the group to share the perspective of the one child that's noticed the problem there. So I think it's those kind of enabling techniques that we need of course you know anybody that's got parents that are supportive should be encouraged to talk to their parents about how they might take this forward and to try and identify whether there are other peers in their peer group who might share their discomfort with what's going on so I think that's part of the challenge and we need to sort of get away from the you need to be there all the time on alert to challenge everything that's said because that can be quite hard for young people to sort of have to say the right thing at the right time Of course, you know, as people get older, you can choose your friends more easily, can't you? And you could sort of decide, well, if this person's going to keep saying things that are sexist or racist or homophobic or offensive, that you really don't want to be part of that group. But I think it's tough for kids at school because they're always kind of in the same classroom, aren't they? In the same group, particularly at the moment with the pandemic conditions. They've kind of got to stick it out with that group and they've got to think carefully about how they intervene.
0: Now, we've all heard that Ofsted are threatening to go into, threatening, (laughs) going into school to explore whether or not appropriate action has been taken, which, you know, these poor Mm. schools having to manage that. So I've been thinking, I wonder what Ofsted are going to look for. Are they going to audit classroom Mm -hmm. attitudes? You know, are they going to see whether or not schools have carefully evaluated need in this school? Are they going to use evidence based materials? Are they going to involve young people in content and delivery? You know, what do you think Ofsted should be looking for? And how could they support schools to do better?
1: Well, I'm not an expert in Ofsted, but I, I do think the language of threatening to go in is a is a masculine language, isn't it? And it's the wrong approach, isn't it, if you're trying to find a progressive solution to to violence that we kind of go for this tough talking approach and i think it'd be better if ofsted were going in looking to work with schools to see what they can do to support them to improve their provision i think a key thing for me and it it, i mean all the things you suggest are good but i think a key thing for me is actually about the joined upness of what goes on particularly after the the age of 16 so we tend to sort of have this model of relationship education that kind of sticks everything in like a robot. You're just sticking a disc in up to the age of 15, 16, and then it all stops. And it stops at really the wrong point because we know that the problem of domestic abuse really starts to sort of escalate in that 16-plus age group. So we need to be sort of thinking about what foundations are laid in those secondary school years and then find ways of continuing that dialogue in the 16 to 18 Or the 18 to 25-year-old group, you know, one of the things that's been going on this week is all those disclosures about what's been happening in in universities. Well, in my experience, the domestic abuse education has, has kind of really ended by the time people have finished their GCSE. So we kind of need to somehow find a way of embedding schools or what happens in schools with a level of through care. And I think that should really take away the focus of and some of the pressures on teachers to get all the content in there at that age, because what's going to happen is when someone's 16 or 17, they're going to sort of think, well, now I'm in this relationship, it's not really working out. And I do remember something my teacher said to me, you know, when I was 15, 14, but I'm not quite sure how relevant it is now. I know the facts of domestic violence, but I don't really know emotionally how to navigate this relationship. So I think it's that joined upness that I'd really like to see Ofsted cultivating, supporting across the education system rather than a kind of let's get tough on schools and hold them to account for what they are and they aren't doing. Because in, in my experience, most schools are, are doing a pretty good job. And would
0: you be would you be a fan of one of the ideas put forward that on, on the point of transition to university, you have to complete a mm-hmm. kind of a module, an online module or be reminded of some of the principles around You know, the way in which we conduct ourselves in personal relationships at uni, something like that.
1: I don't know about online modules. I don't don't know what you think about them, but they can sometimes feel a bit soulless, can't they? So I I kind of think actually something that's more akin to mentoring might be better for many people. it's, It's about continuing that dialogue and starting to make it responsive to what's going on in people's lives is what we really need I'm sure there is online content that could be there. But the danger would be, as we were saying earlier, that it comes back to teaching people the law around consent or teaching people about the percentages of people that have experienced domestic abuse or going through the different types of domestic abuse. I I kind of think once people have got those kind of facts, they need something a bit more. And one of the problems, I think, for many people that are living with domestic abuse is that they spend quite a long time thinking it's not really domestic abuse, it's something else. It's just a bad patch going through a difficult time. They don't really recognize, they don't really want to recognize that what they're living through is, you know, what's been taught to them before. So I think it needs to be something that's a little bit more responsive than can probably be delivered at the moment with online content.
0: So potentially universities and colleges could think a little bit more systemically about the kind of the culture that they want to make sure is there, but also think about how they could set up particular systems, mentoring programs, mm-hmm. you know, something a little bit more interesting yeah. and, and potentially use, you know, peer to peer initiatives as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so.
0: You've written so much, Dave, you've produced so many wonderful articles and contents and books. What would you really like educators or school leaders to, what would you like to draw their attention to within your work? And are there any particular websites or tools or things that you're aware of that are already in existence in this area that you really want to draw schools attention to? (laughs)
1: Uh, they're tough questions Uh, in terms of services for men I think the Respect website and the men's helpline is really quite an important service in the UK but I'd have to check whether it's open to young people or not and my suspicion is that it actually isn't one of the real challenges that we have in the UK is that many services are set up for adults and they don't reach down enough in my view and I actually don't think there's any reason why they shouldn't reach down nowadays because you know the difference between what 15 year olds and 25 year olds think is not as fast as we we often assume so i think i need i think i need a couple of minutes to think about your question kathy
0: you know you did so much work from the boys to men project or other projects Mm -hmm. you know there were mechanisms that you had suggested to schools that potentially have got lost in the mists of time that there were a few things done on a sort of european level that potentially schools could benefit from you know using here
1: yeah we did produce a, 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 a it's on the readapt website and that we did produce some resources there my, my feeling about them is that probably these things become outdated quicker than you would like now so you know you can always find pop songs that are addressing issues around domestic abuse but it's really important to keep that up to date. So there's no point in putting stuff on that looks like it's from your, your dad's record collection because you know it's, it's an instant turn off there. so I think it's really important to try and find multimedia resources that enable young people to see themselves in the content to some degree without having to go through the pain of what sometimes like kind of drama groups in, in school forum theater I think quite a lot of young men find that quite difficult and off-putting. Whereas if you can find stuff from popular culture that they're more familiar with and say, well, hang on, the lyrics in this song are suggesting something that is a bit presumptuous about this woman that are kind of, you know, uh, over-sexualizing women or are telling a story about a man who's lost his temper. You know, I think you can use that kind of content in a much more innovative way and then you can get young people to deconstruct it a bit. So, yeah, there is some content in the READAPT project. There's also some content in the From Boys to Men project online which is all free to access. But I think my advice to anyone sort of going into it now would be to sort of look at the multimedia content and see if there's stuff that they could update that with or substitute it with to go with the questions that we posed originally. And
0: schools can very easily think about just taking contemporary examples and using that as a, as a discursive point in schools and talking about relationships yeah. that teenagers recognise or even, as you suggest, a particular song. So it doesn't need to be overly complex
1: no there is some just just as we're talking coming to mind there is the safe lives website and that does have some really good video-based content that's about engaging young men so i'd probably encourage schools to go to that at the moment
0: that's fantastic before we finish tell me a little bit about what you're working on right now that may not be related to this field but equally fascinating
1: Oh, working on all kinds of things right now one of the jobs i've had during the pandemic has been to try and help Greater Manchester develop its gender abuse policy and that's out for consultation at the moment and has been a really exciting piece of work trying to connect together services that are offered in the context of education but in health and criminal justice and perhaps most importantly of all encouraging them to develop a strategy that is led by survivors that has a panel of survivors that directs the strategy with the deputy mayor over the next 10 years so that's going to be a really exciting piece of work and a space i think for people to watch to see what happens in greater manchester probably some context is that you know greater manchester has devolved government, so it has a little bit of, a little bit more freedom to innovate than some other places and cities do and it's had you know the strategy that we've got has had the full backing of the Mayor Andy Burnham and the Deputy Mayor Fairview. So there's quite a lot of enthusiasm and excitement around this at the moment.
0: Well it sounds like you're doing an amazing job and we're so thrilled <laughs> to have been able to speak to you today. Thank you so much for all the work that you've done in this area and the work that you continue to do. Thank you so much.
1: You're very welcome Cathy. Nice to see you.
0: This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com. Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.